Here, still lingering in the chaotic early days of the 21st century, spinning wildly in total darkness with no idea what the next year, the next month, or even the next day of world events will bring, we might all feel a bit fatigued by made-up stuff. Of course, fiction is more palatable when bound in a book or read on a stage than when it's the exclusive output of our world leaders, but in a post-truth world, can honest lies help us? We think so. Stories, whether painted on walls, broadcast on television, or serialised in a sequence of interactive YouTube videos, are our oldest, our most essential method of communicating information. We tell each other cautionary tales, we express universal emotions which we previously thought unique to us, we bring villains to justice and lift heroes up on our shoulders. When those who undervalue our intelligence and our human rights take giddy delight in lying to us again and again, we need a few more honest liars. We need more fiction we can believe in. We need more stories. Welcome to Story Etc. Story Etc. This is Story Etc. I'm Tom Crowley. Our programme is an anthology series designed as a themed monthly exploration of fiction in all its forms. The theme of this debut edition is inclusion. So if you don't see yourself represented, you're almost being told you don't exist or you aren't important enough. That was Matilda Ibini from an interview coming up later in the programme. To define inclusion briefly, we're talking about the act of trying to make sure that your work includes a number of different voices. People of all genders, people of different sexualities, people of different physical abilities, people of all different races and nations. It's an ongoing struggle. Convincing Hollywood studio bosses that audiences want to see a female-led action film, or that a film about a young gay black man's life experience might do quite well. Those examples make it sound like the fight is over, but the word inclusion contains an inherent problem. The establishment in commissioning, funding and producing work is overwhelmingly white and male. At the moment, for the most part, it's the ones at the top including people who aren't like them, rather than handing them the reins and making lasting change for the future. And, of course, I'm very aware that as a straight white British man presenting this programme, I'm part of the problem. So what are my responsibilities? More on that later. For now, let's hear from a young creative who made his own way in the arts. Marley Butler is a poet and musician based in Birmingham. He's the creative coordinator of Naplu Productions, a publishing platform boasting fine arts, music, printed books and video. He talked to us about his relationship with his art and the importance of sharing it with as many others as possible. Hello listener, my name is Marley Butler. I'm an artist raised by Wolverhampton, nurtured by Derby, and I currently reside in Birmingham, England. Music is my predominant form of expression. If we were to use the analogy of a tree, it's the trunk and everything else I do with the branches, twigs and leaves of that tree. Alongside this, I'm also the creative coordinator of Naplu Productions, which again is the foundation, the soil, the roots, and space to plant and nurture other artistic trees, mine and those of other artists. As you may tell from that rather convoluted introduction, I do like an analogy, as you may tell as we go forward. I hope you have a cup of tea. I've got mine. This will last about a quarter of your cup. Here, I will talk about my relationship with sharing creations. I see each piece of art that I make, whether it be music, writing, filmmaking, etc., as just very small parts of one big story. Different periods of time form creative pockets, thus creating chapters for one big book. In essence, this book is a fiction. No matter how autobiographical bits may seem, to the person viewing it can only be a fiction, due to interpretation and them seeing it through their own lens. The book will only end when I die, 
Sometimes I think that the perfect purest book would be if no one was to hear or see a single creation of mine until I died. In this context, I think of the term inclusion as the inclusion of an audience when you complete chapters. In simpler terms, sharing your work publicly before death. I started creating music as a teenager. At this time, it was purely a therapeutic tool that was working in real time with particular acute childhood traumas. There was no audience and this did not enter my mind in the slightest. Eventually, I would share bits and pieces of things with people very close to me. For example, a girlfriend I had at the time, she would say nice things and make me think about sharing work with people other than her. This made me make a MySpace account with my music, but I kept deleting it and it made me feel quite uncomfortable. Sharing the outcomes of therapy seemed like the oddest thing possible to me then. This happened again a few years later when I made an album called Opposites that I shared with a handful of friends and my girlfriend at that time. MySpace had been in gone and we were in the Facebook and YouTube generation. I YouTubed how to fold card into CD cases and gave my album to those friends. A defining moment, or a moment of transition in my perspective came when I heard feedback from one of those friends. She was using the same language to me about my music that I'd used in my head when I thought about the music of other artists that had touched me emotionally and helped me get through tough times and helped heal scars. I began to ruminate on the notion of, what if my musical heroes that had helped me in my journey fought how I fought and never shared their work of an audience? I would never hear it, and where would I be if I'd never heard it? My girlfriend pushed me to send the album to a label, which I did, and I released it. That was the start of me being far more comfortable with me sharing work, sharing chapters of creations from that big book. Plus, over the years, the relationship to creation changed from the way it was when I was a child. It can be, and is at times, but not 100% as it was back then, as my life is very different now. My artistic life has therefore become about the tension between sharing and wanting to be left alone, to be inclusive of my work or to shut people out, moving away from solipsism to the world's words, tortures and soft blankets of nails. These are my thoughts today. Who knows what they'll be next year? That's the beauty. Art carries me and leads me to freedom. I won't know the answers until the last page is written and the book is closed. We're now very proud to present Nobody's Indelible by Marley Butler. Nobody's perfect. We spit around mistakes, then in a fake we resurface and hesitate when we're nervous and the curses underneath these verses, the things that don't get said when renewed life emerges, things like the demons that live inside of you won't lose sight to purpose even though you found your view and you're on your own, even in a crowd full of people all alone thinking that one day you'll be equal. Waiting for your sequel but it never comes You succumb to the world stage Even though it numbs And at this age you can't express it through rage You'd rather sit in your cage and make it beautiful And forget about what he says and she says Cause who are they to judge? Their words are only words and you're ineffable as such You rush into the corner of your mind Self-expressing all the time Effervescing and decline Life lessons redefined Pain on mind To my indelible notes I'm passing through Rocking all of the boats Stealing paddles from quotes And I knew within the battles I wrote that there were few if any moments of growth in those gargantuan oaths so when I write do I write for us both does it askew pain or does it evoke anemophilus choke all I see in this vision is smoke indecision is the popular vote in the election of hope and with a kind that falls apart to evolve closing doors so we solve the mysteries of our souls and who knows we may just find the keys to inner resolve then step away from inclinations to fold face in the chorus of old I'm just talking ignore every thought please I 
freeze when you shine that light in my face and encased in every line of pictures to trace of signs signifying dreams we erased defying all that we chased I'm just talking ignore every thought please I freeze when you shine that light in my face and encased in every line of pictures to trace of signs signifying dreams we erased defying all that we chased as Marley tells us, for many people, creative expression is an essential part of discovering and defining their own identity. But let's say you're a young performer trying to carve out a career for yourself in a competitive industry. Most of the people in the industry don't look like you, and the industry seems perfectly happy with that. What do you do? Olivia Onyahara is an actor originally from Grimsby, now based in London. Eleanor Rushton, one of our producers, spoke to her about how she first got into theatre and what to do when the opportunities just aren't there. I'm an actor and I am mixed race. <laughs> my dad is from Nigeria and my mum is a Geordie. When you first decided to be an actor, mm -hmm. when did you first decide to be an actor actually? I mean, it's a really um, annoying question, sorry. No, no, I mean, it's a funny one for me because I, um, so where I grew up didn't, Grimsby doesn't really have its own theatre. It has an auditorium. It wasn't around as I was growing up so I kind of had to travel outside of home to go and see things mm. so going to the theatre wasn't really we would go to pantomimes and we would go to see musicals and things because that's what my mum and my auntie specifically were into so they would bring me to do those kind of things it wasn't ever something that I ever thought that I could do growing up you would go to see a pantomime and, and you'd go once a year, these people doing this job wasn't something you ever thought that you could do because you just couldn't see a path to that. So, And then when I started doing my A-levels, uh, my sister, who uh, was living in Nottingham at the time, was singing with a, an opera chorus and she asked me to come up for the weekend to do props and I really enjoyed myself. So because I did a good job, the lady who ran the chorus asked me to come back for a week to stage manage an opera. So I blagged a week off college, worked with a, uh, an amazing director called Jeff Bullen who also teaches at RADA. That was kind of my first taste. Grimsby is very, was when I was growing up, it's a bit more diverse now, very, very, very white place. And it was also, it's quite, it was quite a hostile environment growing up because you were just different. And also it's, there's not, um, there wasn't there, I'm, I can't, because I don't live there now, but there's no brand new business there. So there's no, there isn't lots of new people coming. So the attitudes are very old fashioned. Yeah. So kind of one of my running jokes was that, you, you, somebody would be racist to you, but they'd be like racist using language of like the 60s. Right, it's like okay. old school racism. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I didn't go to like stagecoach. I didn't go to um, any of the local drama. Th I'm I think there were a few, but so that was my first taste. And then come to the end of my degree, I was working with Jeff again, uh, again, stage managing. I just said, oh, you know, I, I really want to keep doing this. And he said, oh, look for um, courses. He was like, do a one year, don't do three. Um, so that's what I did. But was there any sort of part you were dreaming of playing? Like, was it operas? Or was no, it I mean, no, I think stuff. my closest. So I remember going to see Blue Orange at the Stephen Joseph Theatre when I was doing my A-levels and Chiwetel Ejiofor was playing the lead. That was one of the first times I'd seen a black actor on stage. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting because I kind of was yanked out of being able to think about that fully and how that affected me. 
because during the interval or after the play, my drama teacher asked me to, and asked me specifically if I had seen any other black people in the theatre. It's weird when somebody asks you those questions, like they expect you to be able to answer it because you are also not white. So up until that point, I'd never really thought about that I couldn't do any part, but I'd also never thought that I, that I could do any part. Grimsby was so white that I never felt like I would be... I, I was always the outsider, so I didn't think that the rest of my life would be any different. So I didn't think, oh, I'm not going to be able to do that because I'm not white, because I was exi- living in a world that was entirely white and going about my day-to-day business. And, yeah, some things were harder and, yeah, some people were prejudiced, but you just kind of kept going. Yeah. Um, and the most... And most, of, as I said, most of the the things I would go and see regularly would be musicals and they were mostly white. So mm. it wasn't ever like, oh, I can't, can't be in that because I'm not white. It'd be like, I can't be in that because I can't sing like that mm. more. So I hadn't really properly thought about that. It was so not on my horizon to be an actor that the idea that I couldn't, would then not be able to do things because I was, wasn't white, wasn't even in my you know sphere of consciousness yeah. at all. What do you think led you to start thinking about your race as something that would be being considered and judged by people, not only in terms of the racism that you'd already experienced just by being in a predominantly white town, but also the sort of possibly more insidious racism that's Mm. in the industry of people who don't think are being racist and racist casting and that kind of stuff. There was a few things that people said to me at drama. I mean, there's things that happened at drama school that I was called the wrong name for a year by a member of staff. Um, I, you know, there was another mixed race girl on the year who left, and then a member of staff called me her name for like a whole year. For the whole year, she left after a month. We didn't look similar, you know. But that was that. There was so that's you know those kind of things I suppose happened. But um, things like from people that I worked with at school, somebody said what well, a member of staff asked me if I was on the bursary. That they always give it to. Did they say the black people or the non-white non-white students? One of those two things. So someone says that, and you're like, oh. Somebody will say it to you and a peer will maybe say it to you and then there'll be a, 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 lot, a load of people there who won't necessarily disagree or pull them up. Those things to kind of take away from you as a performer because I'm there, I'm putting the same amount of effort and working as everybody else, but you're being told by these privileged people that you are going to be ahead of them. Those are probably the first few things that kind of crop up and you're like, oh... There seems to be a shared opinion about me as a non-white performer that I had never thought about, that I can't control, I had nothing to do with. I'd see, you know, I used to say to my agent, if, you know, if there's a breakdown and it just says a waitress and it's one line and it says white, unless it's set in 1605 Sweden, put me up for it. <laughs> you know, That's like... That's really cool. You know, and it, you've kind of got to put... and, and Challenging people. Yeah, challenging bunch. And I said, oh, you know, just... Can you not just put in the submission box unless there's a reason? Could you also consider? That's awesome. Know, yeah. Sometimes it may be just his habit. You just put white, 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 yeah. white, 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 white. Awesome. Yeah. Good for you. Push. Good <laughs> for you. There's more emphasis now on kind of colourblind casting in various mm. ways. And that's becoming something that people are more comfortable with, mm. particularly when it comes to things like classical drama mm. or Shakespeare and not so much when it comes to things like period drama or adaptations of texts that are set in a particular period. Perhaps that's a better way to put it. So mm. like Jane Austen or Bronte or something yeah. like that. I 
remember seeing the advert for the new BBC drama series, like where they show all the clips of all the things. And I was like, oh, it's just all white faces again. And this was actually kind of before I was politically more aware of what I was saying. They were doing, I think, Oliver Twist and why, when we all know the stories, we all know Oliver Twist. And even if we don't, but we all know Oliver Twist, we all know, I don't know, Pride and Prejudice. Why, again and again and again, do they cast an all-white cast? Mm. What came up from the people at the table was that it's not historically accurate. Part of my dissertation focused on the migration of emancipated slaves from the States to, to the UK, and also um, kind of where, where people were living and how they were living and things like that. So I know that that isn't the case. Arguing historical accuracy is just daft because it just wasn't, it's not true. Of course, the numbers were fewer. Yeah. Of course they were. But, um, you know, there were enough people in living in London, Queen Victoria, to, to call for repatriation mm. and for there to be slave catchers. Yeah. There were enough. Yeah. Why don't people know about that? I believe that people learn their history through what they see visually. You know, when you watch old films or films about olden days, mm. that when you only see a white cast, that's what yeah. you believe it was like. And it, that isn't true. And then things are kind of whitewashed. It's like the, the last suffragette film set in Bethnal Green. Only white people. And I know you can only put so much in a film. Don't have to tell that story, but let people see that it was more diverse. Yeah. Just be cl yeah. clever about what you're sure. showing people, which is, you know, why it's Stephen Knight is amazing. I remember watching Peaky Blinders and seeing Benjamin Zephaniah and being like, oh, yay, <laughs> yay, you know. And there was the Chinese laundry in it. And they're like, yeah, this is what it was. It was, you know. And it's amazing. And people will say these things about historical accuracy and they don't know enough about it to mm. say it. Yeah, and, and, and then what goes hand in hand with being historically accurate is being British and what goes in hand with that is being white. Yeah. So then you have all these people who've, are second, third generation British who aren't white, who go, well, then am I not British? Yeah. It's like people feel like if you do that, you're taking away from something. Maybe it's with being mixed race. People are so interested in, so do you, do you, can, do you think of yourself as black or white? Do you think of yourself as British? It's like, well, you don't let me think of myself as that. Also, people seem to get hung up on, it's not what Jane Austen or Charlotte Bronte would have been imagining. And it's like, well, maybe not, mm. but they probably yeah. wouldn't have imagined a lot of you know, a lot of stuff. Yeah, about they wouldn't have imagined it being filmed. It being filmed, exactly. <laughs> or by making one or two things that are possibly, possibly not what the writer was had imagined, does that mean that we've ruined the legacy forever and ever and ever? Is yeah. it gone? That's it now. And we're so comfortable you know. doing it with Shakespeare or... Yeah. Opera. Yeah, or exactly. Anything, anything yeah. It's kind of not a yeah. problem. Yeah, it's anything that you could deem kind of more of a fantasy. And you just... You're thinking that, oh, you know, these writers weren't thinking of non-white people when they were writing their novel, but Shakespeare wrote Othello, so where mm. do you get that idea from? Yeah. Heathcliff sounds pretty brown to me. As a non-white performer, you're kind of getting bashed on both sides because people will shake that I'm being historically accurate stick. When you say historically accurate, you mean you my actors just have to look white. It's such a thoughtless thing to say. You know, your actor might be French. So basically what you're saying is we don't look right automatically excluded on these grounds that you, you feel like you can't fight. When I was writing my dissertation, I was reading lots of reviews of shows that had been colourblind cast and just being so shocked that you think, oh man, audiences will buy anything. They'll go to Verona, they'll buy that you're dead, but come putting somebody who's not white on stage, people just go mad about it. 
saying it's, it's all it's confusing all of a sudden it's this it's or it's this is and I was like I, how is it that you're you know we're not you know we'll go to see Midsummer Night's Dream and we're not confused that we're in the land realm of the fairies that's okay we'll take that I'll take that but this is too much I did private lives I was playing Sybil I was so 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 excited I was so excited to get that part and because Private Lives was the first Noel Coward play that I'd ever been to see and I remember going to the theatre and thinking I'll never get to be in one of these shows. There was a big gap between me getting the part and then going up to do it and in that space I had a pound for every time somebody said oh you're playing the maid I would have had my wage I think for the few months that I was there so I had that quite a lot and then I did have a colleague say we were talking about actors who had being cast in parts that were written for people not of their heritage. And the person I was talking to said, oh, well, you've stolen a white girl's part. And I was like, well, actually, it doesn't say that she's white in the description of the character. It does say she's blonde. I have been blonde. It's, I suppose it is kind of feeling like you shouldn't be doing it or feeling like you're not the traditional... Well, you, we know we're not the traditional casting for it but you're kind of heading off any kind of objections yeah. before it gets on stage. I kind of found myself being really panicked because some of the initial images that went out were of a, a white blonde woman and a, on the poster. It was a cartoon, white blonde woman and a, and a white guy. And I hadn't realised till quite a long way through the process that I was really nervous that I was going to step out onto the stage and there were going to be kind of like, <gasps> um. <laughs> you know, gasps. In this industry, you're judged on what you look like you can't there's no getting away from that that's fine we all sign up to that but I think you forget sometimes that there's another there's something else another layer there yeah. that you, that it's not just aesthetically what you look like it's the cultural connotations of what yeah. you bring to a piece some things are weighted more yeah. heavily yeah unfairly I think I, I think theatre is slow getting better and as I said there are some fantastic casting directors out there and theatres out there who are really doing their best to you know up their game and Rice we love you you know I've spoken about the Midsummer Night's Dream so often you felt like you were in London and they didn't feel the need to set it anywhere yeah the amount of productions I've gone you know I mean I've, we're, we're going to have an all black cast so we'll set it in Africa yeah go to Peckham that need to have to do that to have to justify it we don't live in that world anymore that whole show, it seemed just a celebration of what, what unites people within, you know, within this story, what unites people, what divides people, and what they look like being irrelevant and relevant. Hopefully, and I hope that we get to a point where people do not feel they have to justify it. That's such an interesting word to use. You don't yeah. have to justify yeah. not being white. Yeah. You do, yeah, you don't have to justify your decision to, 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 to cast things differently. We have a lack of women we have a lack of minority storytellers. Yeah. Why is that? Well, I mean, your opportunities are different. You know, do we say that big places like the BBC, places like the National, what are they doing as much as they can? You know, I think they do well with their, with their casting, actually, very well at the National. But, I mean, with opportunities for people who maybe have just... People have got stories to tell, I suppose, outside of London. There's a lot of... A lot of um, and how big places, how how big institutions can reach out mm. and really support people as writers and performers. They got long arms. Got long arms. Yeah. And also, it's a shame we can't. I mean, could we? Is there? I don't know. 
this is I'm just making stuff up now. Is there not a body that it's a storytelling podcast? You okay. go for it. <laughs> is there not like a body we could have that? Could you not have a body and for someone to go? Well, could this person not be something else? And could this? Would it take away? Because people are writing from their own perspective, yeah. and people are bound by what they their know own privilege and, who, and what yeah. they know. But someone just to be like, could this be like this? And actually, most writers I think are quite imaginative people, and might yeah. go, oh yeah, yeah, that would work fine. Yeah, that would absolutely work fine. You know, for the last year, I've been making a conscious effort to really vote with my feet and vote with my purse and go and see things that are trying to do that. And I'm not going to see... I've decided to not see things that aren't making a good enough effort. It falls on everybody's shoulders, the actors who are accepting the jobs, the people who are offering the jobs and the people who are creating those jobs. That was our very own Eleanor Rushton speaking to actor Olivia Onyahara. Digging your fingers in. Making your own opportunities. Ways for unheard voices to speak out, whether those at the top are listening or not. Fortunately, in recent years, film and theatre producers at the very top are beginning to realise that audiences want to hear as many different stories as possible. But when you see prejudice and injustice in the world targeted against you and others like you, how can you use creativity to combat it? Is it even possible to make real change using art? Paul Harfleet has taken two approaches recently, first in his celebrated movable feast of installation art, The Pansy Project, and now in his upcoming children's book, Pansy Boy. Jenny Redman spoke to Paul about kicking back against homophobia with creativity and kindness in a rather bustling London cafe. About a boy who is, loves nature and looks at birds and uh, sort of embeds himself in nature during the summer holidays and doesn't want to go to school because he knows he's going to get bullied. Um, he then gets bullied really badly and feels like he has to do something about it, and which he then does, which is where the Pansy Project comes in. Because we'll start there. Yeah, so I, um, I started the Pansy Project. It was kind of inspired by one particular day where I experienced three separate incidences of homophobia. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was just finishing my MA in fine art, and I was interested in how different um, objects and memories create different feelings in the city. So I just started planting pansies everywhere I'd experienced abuse around Manchester. And there was about 10, and um, I took the photographs and I built a blog, which was at the time quite innovative, and um, I started sharing it with people I knew and it was pre-Facebook and pre-social media so it was just very much like emails and stuff and then but I shared it with Career Up North which is a queer arts festival in Manchester and they adored it and sort of jumped on it like we love this we want to help you get this out they already saw the potential for it straight away how many pansies have you so far planted to date? Well, individually, maybe now must be about 300 all around the world, mostly around Europe. Um, and what happened early on is that I realised that I should be planting them for other people, not just me. I started gathering locations from other people and planting them, planting pansies for them, naming them after the abuse that they'd experienced and then just adding it to this website. So the website is now like an anecdotal record of all this homophobia all over Europe mostly now. But, um, 
it has been in Istanbul and New York and Hong Kong and stuff. It's really about how ridiculous homophobia is. That's I've never ever understood any sort of prejudice. As a child, I didn't understand it. I was always surprised that people would judge people based on anything. And when I started experiencing homophobic bullying myself, I was just obviously upset, but perplexed that it was a thing. It still perplexes me. And really, I want people to talk about it and to, because people, the people who are actually those people who say things like that, I can't, I don't really know what their motivations are. And so I'm interested in that, but I'm really interested in people who may be isolated by that, which there still are people who are isolated by bullying. Um, making them not feel quite so alone and feel that there's people out there doing something. Before I was an artist, I used to be a drag queen. So I really wanted to distance myself from the drag persona because I think a drag identity and a gay identity is seen culturally I think as slightly humorous as a joke as a kind of and I suppose what I was wrestling with, with was with internalized homophobia I think all gay people have to wrestle with that at some point so I think that's what I was doing and as I became as after I graduated and I started doing my MA I began to kind of see the political need to do something about it and I felt I had a responsibility to do something about it and I suppose that was what it was and I, I, I was reluctant because I didn't really want to be pigeonholed and still I think my work by the art world proper is sort of nearly seen as sort of you know, a community project or something that is slightly on the outside of what actual real art is. I had a dream about Pansy Boy and in the dream I had the whole story fell into my head. So I was like, okay, and I literally woke up and wrote it down in the loosest terms. And I could just kind of knew what was gonna happen. It was really strange. And in my sort of subconscious mind, I knew that the boy was kind of me-ish, but it was, I just started drawing. I drew hundreds of drawings of a boy's face to try and find the face. And it was really odd when I actually drew his face. I almost said to myself, oh, there you are. It was like I'd found him. And I knew that it was going to be rhyming. So I, as a child, really liked those kind of rhymes. Mm -hmm. And so there, there's, I don't know, rhyming couplets run through the whole story. And um, that's kind of how it started, really. Weirdly, the street art world has embraced it. I'm in quite a few street art books now. And um, it, it kind of falls under that umbrella. But aside from maybe Banksy, which is sort of teetering on the edge of that world between street art and galleries, um, doesn't really fit. I've not had many exhibitions in galleries proper. And, um, but it's sort of slightly changing and it's, I suppose I'm interested in that area in between disciplines. That's why I'm interested in doing a garden or jewellery or the book because it's kind of slightly outside of my comfort zone. I found a publisher and the publisher helped me. So he's, all, he's, he's operated almost more of an editor than a publisher and he's helped me get the text 
strong and tight and the, the words correct and marrying the illustrations with the words and kind of it feels much more coherent as a piece of work now than it did when I first wrote it there was I don't know 2,000 words and now I think it's down to 300 so it, and it feels much more succinct as a piece of work it was interesting one of the publishers um, wrote back and said that they found the language the, the homophobic language really disturbing Okay. And actually, I, or I say, it's like fairy, pansy, or just queer were the mm. words he came to fear. And they, those words, pansy, fairy, and queer, are not... That's the worst, that's as bad as it gets, mm. really. But it's, So, I suppose... In the book, you mean, obviously in the not book, in life. Not in life, unfortunately, yeah. Um, but I don't know, it's very difficult because... Capitalism, perhaps, is inherently homophobic because it, a gay population is relatively small, mm -hmm. so you can you can already begin to see the limits of your audience. I think the world is homophobic. I don't think it's necessarily that any particular industry is more guilty than another. I think the world is inherently homophobic as it is sexist and racist. It's just we are all of those things, whether we like it or not. And, Individually, our job, I think, is to challenge that when we see it. And my job with this book is to offer another voice. There are other books about bullying and there are other books that kind of talk about transgender issues and all of those kind of things that are specifically aimed at children. Yeah. Some of them much younger. And the world is better with complexity in it, with different versions of stories. And it's just another story. And hopefully it's beautiful. My publisher... Um, was speaking with a literary agent who was looking at distributing it globally and seeing how that would work. And um, so we sent the PDF to some publishers and their feedback was really interesting because what they, most of them, well, no other publisher globally wanted to pick it up because they found it quite discombobulating in terms of where to place it because it's a picture book and it's, the vocabulary is quite ambitious for like a six-year-old, but, but it's a picture book, so it's not really for 14, that age group. Um, so it, I can see that perhaps it's perhaps a strange fit for a marketing universe, and that's why I'm kind of quite key and um, quite determined to get a good marketing campaign behind it. What would you say to straight writers who, who need to make sure that voices and, and the number of voices that are able to, to talk about this type of issue need to create? I really wanted Pansy Boy to have to start off with this interest in nature and a, a thorough interest in nature and making paper aeroplanes and doing something else because just like me, my sexuality isn't the most interesting thing about me. So, and a lot of the time in popular culture, if there's a gay character, to. Yeah, yeah, the gay character is reduced to their sexual drive. That's all they're really interested in. And it maybe if it's not that, it might be fashion or something like that. So, I want to see three-dimensional characters. I want to see myself reflected in culture. Mm -hmm. What happens if when you're a gay person is you're so used to not seeing yourself, you have to make a leap out of what it is that you um, when, when you're in a film and you see a romantic comedy you're so used to thinking which one could I be which one would I be you're, you always have to make a leap you're not just seeing yourself reflected immediately in the, in the fictional mirror was it important to you that 
there wasn't a romantic notion in Panty Boy. But there wasn't a romantic ending. Oh, quite a lot of fiction ends in a kind of tight up with a bow. Well, Life is it, complete now that you've got a partner. Well, yes. Well, no, he's found a friend. And I, I thought... There's a, there's a very... There's an unsaid weirdness about... And it's, a, it's something that is disturbing. But as a gay man, there's a, you have this kind of association with paedophilia. It's just there in culture. So I also have to take that on board as a thing. Mm. And, you know, there's been so many comments about how, you know, gay people and paedophiles should not be allowed here. They're kind of, we're grouped together as this thing. It's really disturbing to me. Mm. And um, Pansy I planted in Belfast is... Someone called Iris was talking on the radio, I can't remember her surname now, and she said that gay men and paedophiles should not be allowed in public life. She, on the radio, she spoke about that. And that kind of just freaks me out. But I, um, I have a responsibility as well to kind of not sexualise a boy. Mm. And, that, you know, I, as a boy, felt quite sexual. That's just the way it was. I knew that I was gay from a very early age. So, and I remember feeling sexual from a very early age, pre-puberty. But I didn't necessarily... It didn't reflect my um, autobiography. I didn't have a boyfriend at school. Maybe in the next book, maybe there... Because I think there are gay boys at school who have boyfriends now. It happens, I know. And so that's amazing that that, even, that can happen. So for me, I, I didn't feel it was quite right to do that. Um, so, um, yeah, so that's what we're doing. <laughs> that was Jenny Redmond speaking to Paul Harfleet. When we talk about inclusion, we also talk about intersectionality. This is the theory that all progressive movements can only be successful when they support one another. If women are liberated, but only white women, then women's equality is far from achieved. So while it's wonderful and very important to see a sci-fi action film with a female protagonist, it's just a small chip out of the top of an enormous iceberg. As our next interviewee tells us in the fight for equal representation in media, the disabled community is frequently left out in the cold. I spoke to Matilda Ibini earlier this year. I'll let Matilda introduce herself. So my name is Matilda Ibini and I'm a playwright, screenwriter, facilitator and procrastinator. I have limb girdle muscular dystrophy and muscular dystrophy is an umbrella term for about 60 different types of muscle wasting and weakening conditions and essentially it's sort of your muscles atrophying so they sort of waste away so I have very limited mobility. I'm currently a wheelchair user and it's a progressive disability so it gets worse as you get older fun. There is no cure, it's simply just managing the symptoms with uh, aids and adaptations in the house or like using a wheelchair. The way I think the way it affects sort of my writing just means that every day when I wake up I have a very limited source of energy and there are certain things I can expend it on and things that I can't and I have carers who come in to help me whether it's get out of bed, get dressed, have a shower, make me breakfast, take pain meds um and yeah sort of with everyday living really like day to day I think because yeah it's that you're sort of like you're black woman and disabled like I fill a lot of quotas but don't get a lot of work (laughs) like um but growing up 
my disability is the first thing people notice. My race is second and gender rarely comes into it. I'm, I'm probably asexual compared to like my the way I come across or something. Like people don't see me as a woman. They see me as a disabled person first. And I think that's why for me, in my experiences, race has been sort of secondary people say oh you're not walking right or oh you use a crutch or you can't sit down on those types of chairs or you're a wheelchair user like it's very visual that's the biggest thing people see first before my race I think the business of being a writer uh, is that you don't make a lot of money and so you have to do other stuff which is why I've sort of slowly gravitated to facilitating and get a bit of work now and again with different theatre companies whether it's to lead workshops or provide support or work on projects in developing stories with children or young people. But so the business of being a writer, I think with my paired with my disability means I can't do a lot. Things take a lot longer to do. I'm not particularly fast at doing things or completing things. So needing a bit more time, um, having a carer with me everywhere. So when going to workshops, supporting me, um, they're not invisible in the room. They're clearly you'll see them helping me do things, whether it's reach things from my bag, help me take off my jacket. Like the carer is another person supporting me in order to be able to do my job. Um, and so, if I go to meetings, my carers probably help me get there. Um, and so I'm fine, sort of one on one with a person, you know, over a coffee or something, or. Um, if I'm going to a workshop, they'll probably be with me. Some of them, I've gotten them interested in writing because they've sat in so many workshops and lectures with me <laughs> that they've started taking out writing. Not necessarily playwriting, but thinking more about stories and how that can help benefit their everyday life. Because it is quite cathartic, writing. We first met on the Royal Court Young Writers Programme in 2012. Yeah, I think oh Late 2012, yeah, yeah. 2017 Jeez. now. I know. We're really old now. years ago. Yeah, that's crazy. So, but at that point in your career, uh, what did the Royal Court Young Writers Programme do for you particularly? And similarly, have other sort of new young writers programmes, uh, have they been a particular help? Are there things that annoy you about them? Um, I think with every sort of writing course, so if we start with the Royal Court, I think I was still learning plays and stuff and I still hadn't seen a lot of theatre so I was sort of wanting to understand how to make theatre. The Royal Court was good in the sense of like being bold and ambitious and thinking of writing for a big stage, not being afraid to have that big cast, like sort of go where your imagination takes you, like don't put any limits or restraints on yourself. Um, but if I remember, was it 10 weeks? It was, but we had an extension because okay. it happened over the Christmas break. Okay, so 10 weeks. So I learned through the Royal Court that I cannot write a play in 10 weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Some people can, good for you if you can, but I definitely can't. Like, I think I ended up writing like a skeleton of a play. So I'd written the bones, but there was no meat on it. It helped me understand that actually what's crucial for any of those courses is how do I write plays, not how how can you teach me to write plays? I think what I struggled with was being really open and honest about it, that um, I just thought, oh God, I'm a terrible writer. I haven't, I'm going to miss this deadline. They're going to kick me off this project. So I've been really lucky in terms of the people that I've worked with. Um, the people that I've almost worked with in the, term, in the sense of like, um, for example, there was another 
I won't go into too many details, but there was another project that I couldn't do because I was so ill, I missed all the deadlines. And by the time they needed a script to give to the actors, I'd just finished the first draft. But they were incredibly understanding that I did try and I was in a lot of pain meds and my mind just wasn't there to be able to do the uh, research necessary to be able to write a really great draft. Like I was too early on in the process and they were far along down the line in the process. Yeah, they've been incredibly accommodating in in terms of understanding my needs and what I need. And and like, for example, uh, last week I went to Leicester with Grey Eye Theatre Company and because of my limited care package, they paid for the hours that my carers with me during the workshops. So my care package could pay for the hours that the carers just with me in the hotel room. Um, so that's incredibly accommodating. I don't think many um, theatre companies or even like office, you know, in, in everyday work would be as supportive. I know there's this access to work scheme, but the government has cut it and there's a cap on how much support they will provide. So they're leaving the uh, gap in support up to the companies who hire disabled people, which is then deterring them from hiring disabled people because they're thinking, oh, it's going to cost us more money or whatever. Yeah, Grey are amazing. Um, I... It's probably like a little spoiler, but I start a residency with them in April for a year. Um, but they're incredible in terms of like uh, spearheading access and wanting to make inclusive work because it's not just about sort of... It's more than just having a, a show on where every cast member has a disability. It's actually more sort of inclusion, that disabled people should be included in the ideas from the very beginning, um, artists with varying disabilities and how access um, is a creative tool that from the beginning of an idea, how can I make sure that um, any audience member can see this, whether they have a visual impairment or a deaf or uh, where this uh, show is staged, the physical building is accessible, that no one is excluded. So Grey Eye is all about inclusion and um, they will... Not, it's not even about bending over backwards, but they will make sure no one is left out and will have to do whatever is necessary to make that happen, whether it's paying for the extra hours so your carer can be with you um, to do something that incredibly supportive. And have also given me a lot of confidence in being able to talk about my condition and my needs and what I need to be able to make work. If we just put, if we call it just for the sake of the conversation, like disability on in media is usually a plot device and when I say plot device I mean in terms of they're not even a character they just sort of needed to be able to push another character forward or the narrative forward they're not actually anything that has agency or independence or authority which is quite sad and I think anyone who thinks representation isn't important is in denial because the way you find yourself is through others and in others and society for whatever reason has created media and has used that as a way of people being able to find themselves and the lives that they live so if you don't see yourself represented you're almost being told you don't exist or you aren't important enough disabilities a lot of the time is sort of uh the villain so they're angry that they're disabled so everyone else has to suffer or something or they're used as um to give another character purpose so it's like they're supposed to be some sort of they call it what inspiration porn like oh at least 
because you can't have you don't have use of your legs at least I I do I can help or I'm yeah I'm inspired to go and try and whatever I think it's really dangerous because the next generation like disability has been here from the dawn of time like it's not something that just sort of happened it's not a lifestyle choice people don't choose to be disabled and I think um, there's a lot of false uh, rhetoric that goes out around disability and um, one of my fears is of the next generation disabled people growing up with the same if nothing has changed with the same sort of representation will grow up hating themselves thinking they're not important or have any value to life or society it's really backwards the way we view disability it's never about the disabled person it's always about their condition it's disappointing in 2017 that we still have these dire representations of disability where it's and it's from people with no and it's written by people with no experience of it like they try and research or try and assimilate themselves and it's still convoluted and messy and it lacks a certain sort of um that authenticity yeah it's it's just disappointing hugely disappointing and then you wonder why okay if there are all these people not making great representation of disability where are the disabled artists who can do it they're not given the same opportunities barriers are put in front of them to prevent them from being able to tell better stories matilda was also kind enough to contribute a short play to our program which we now present we hope you enjoy our debut story etc original production wet dreams and spring mattresses by matilda ibini Honey, I'm home. <laughs> you shouldn't have. Thanks. Where shall I put these? Um, on my desk. Window, it is. <clears throat> Guess what happened to me today? You've had a puff. No, no, five days straight now. Are you? All right, cheeky. You're learning. <laughs> Thank you. So what happened then? I was eating my pasty and... How many have you eaten today? I don't know. I should probably get a loyalty card from Greg's. You're going to get fat and then ill. You should probably register them as your next of kin. Well, if my employers paid me better, maybe I'd be able to afford a quinoa, kale, salmon smoothie. Mm, sounds yum. Being constipated for a week now. I think I don't mind not shitting for the rest of my life. Anyway, I was waiting on the platform when I got attacked. By a seagull. What? Don't laugh. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. Hmm. Anyway, I tried to calmly walk away, but then... It turned brave and grabbed the pasty, so I pulled it out of its grip. It came back for round two. I could see the hungry rage in its eyes, so I hit it with my fist and then kicked it in its side. Spiteful little fuckers they are. I expected to be mugged by people entering zone two, not by bloody seagulls. (laughs) Bloody seagulls coming over here and stealing our pensions and and pasty. (laughs) Exactly. After the trauma I've experienced, I, I feel I need to start an online petition or something. I'm going to wet myself. <laughs> Quick, help me out of my chair. I want to get changed before I use the loo. <laughs> you said you wouldn't laugh. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You shouldn't have told me. I'm going to burst. Of course. Knew it'd make you giggle. Right. What do you need? Could you grab the blue carrier bag under my bed, please? I need you to put me in it. I don't think the bag will fit you. The underwear. Oh. What's that look for? Nothing. Didn't know you had it in you. Well, now you know. 
Ah, what PJs do you want to wear tonight? None. Oh. It's a bit chilly in here. Want me to turn on the heating? Now you're right. Also, I want to sit up in bed. <laughs> you're posing for a sexy portrait. Could you get that? Speaker. No, check it here. Hi. Yeah, still on. Off the... Yeah, exactly opposite the station. Entrance is in the very middle. Dalton House. Yeah. (laughs) You wouldn't believe how hard it was to find. Yeah. It's fully charged. No worries. My care will let you in. Cool. See you in a bit. Someone coming over to paint you? Yes. You want your PJs on then? Nope. So you'll be in just this when they come? I just need you to buzz them up and let them in when they get here. Okay. Who's coming this late? Well, I do come off at midnight, so if they don't show up before then, I guess I don't have to let them in. What? I'm joking. I'm not paying you to entertain me. Do you usually have someone come over this late? They'll take over when they get here. (laughs) But I'm responsible for you. (laughs) That's sweet. But I just need you to answer the door, even if it's after midnight. Of course. Yeah. Of course. So, who is this bitch coming to push me out of a job? (laughs) What if I let in the wrong person? You won't. And I lead them to your room and they quietly murder you and cradle your body all through the night. Too far? (laughs) Yeah. Besides, if I'm getting murdered, so are you. If the murderer doesn't, my mum will finish you off. (laughs) Oh, will she now? (laughs) You are so... (laughs) (laughs) I'm joking. Sorry. Is it a boy-girl... girl-boy... trans friend? No. When did you meet? It's not... It's just a friend. They staying the night? Yes. Maybe. I don't know. Why are they coming so late? Because we're having a sleepover. Who is it? A person with a body. Why won't you tell me? You can meet them when they get here. Should, Should I be worried? It's a professional. Professional murderer. Sexual professional. An escort? Not quite. They're not coming to keep me company. (laughs) Are you crazy? They could do anything, be riddled with anything. I've done my research. How do you know if you've never met? We've been in contact quite a bit. Knows how to work with people with... Comes highly recommended. (laughs) There's a trip advisor for sex workers. Sex advisor? Well, that's their role in a way. I'm pretty confident about... Confidence doesn't stop you from getting chlamydia. You can't stop me from wanting sex. I can't stop me from wanting sex. This isn't... I'm not asking you to have sex with me. That would be inappropriate. I know. I'd politely decline. Good. You passed. What? My test. Look, all I'm asking is you open the door. This... It isn't... It's not in your care package. This isn't about my care package. 
It's about my human package and it needs unwrapping. Just like yours does every night of the week with anything with a pulse. <laughs> it's not every... Th- Sundays are my rest days. Does your... Do you tell your parents when you're horny? Do they help you masturbate? You should have told me beforehand. Why, why do I have to tell anyone? This is my flat. It's between me and the sexual professional. I needed to be consulted. All you do is treat me like a doll. A doll? I have a butt crack, but nothing to play with in front. That's not true. I've seen you... I've seen you pee. I know it's there. You shouldn't be playing with it too often. It's not a game. I mean, there are games you can play, but like... Wait. Why don't you wait? For who? Doctor Who? He's the best choice. A fictional character is the best choice. You do realise he carries a dildo wrapped in tinfoil and dodgy fairy lights. It's called a sonic screwdriver. I know how I look, okay? I'm not going to wait for an app or for someone to fall in love with my personality before they can overlook some bullshit complex they're living with. You can't think like that. So it's okay for you to have sex anytime you like, but I can't. Not because I can't, but because everyone will know. I can't do anything without everyone knowing. I'm not going to let some tool come in and degrade you in your own home or worse. What's worse? The world thinking I'm more asexual than a plant. Or knowing that I've had wet dreams so deep I've almost drowned in them. This... This isn't for you. Just get me dressed and then you can leave. People like that are snakes. Blind you with their venom, leave you naked and numb. And how is that different to how I feel now? You're better than this. I don't think I am. Don't base my sexual future on your sexual history. (laughs) You're a puppy. One stroke and you... There are guidelines for those who are prone to emotional attachments called grow the fuck up. How there are guidelines covering every kind of scenario I can fucking think for myself. Are they aware you're 21? That you've just turned 21. What's the point in living alone if you can't order... This isn't like ordering a takeaway. You do realise that. Just get me ready. This breaches some sort of thing. My virginity. I don't want it anymore. I'm ready to give it to anyone who's willing to take it. You are definitely not ready for sex. It's not about sex. It's about the discovery. I want to find out what I like, how I like it. What I can give, what I have to offer a future partner should there ever be one. I thought you of all people would understand that with your liberal unicorn self. Telling me minutes before... I thought I could handle your reaction. We should have discussed this. What's there to talk about? You are just like the rest of them. The thought of me having any kind of a sex life repulses you. No, I I didn't say that. Then what? I'm not going to facilitate you being abused whilst I'm in the living room. Don't say things like that. You deserve a loving partner who, who understands how amazingly cool you are. And and you are beautiful. They don't exist. Look around in this flat. How will they know I exist if I'm always stuck in here? And I don't want to wait till the point that I'm too ashamed to ask. I'm asking now. Leave the door on the latch. Get out the house. Whatever. Just leave the door open. This won't help you. Not in the way you deserve. This isn't the... I could care less about what I deserve right now. It's about what I want. I want this. I want to explore. 
I want to be explored. And I want should. to feel that glow people talk about. Let me do it. I've put a tampon in you. That's not target practice. You can say no and we'll forget this ever happened. I know how to say it. And you trust me. You wouldn't trust anyone with your pin numbers. I'm going to need you to say it. So, consent and all. I don't want pity. <laughs> it won't be. And I don't want a discount. I'll pay you what I would have paid them. I don't want your... This no. is a transaction. Just like any of the other services you provide me. I'm not going to take your money. What's the difference, me paying them or me paying you? <laughs> there is a difference. I know you. Just the once. Well, I'm not planning on changing careers. I'll get rid of them. Worked. Wet Dreams and Spring Mattresses was written by Matilda Ibini and starred Abiola Ogunbiyi as Jiro and Peter Wicks as Nick. It was produced and directed by Andy Goddard and me, Tom Crowley. Special thanks to Neil Bull. It's actually quite a new thing to my life. Um, prior to about three years ago, before I had my wheelchair, I was living at home with my mum and she was my main carer and Hackney did not mind that, uh, that she looked after me all my life and made sure that I went to the Royal Court to do the courses. I went to Soho. She, she took me everywhere. She really supported and believed the idea that I could write before I even believed. And until I moved out because I needed a wheelchair, then this new experience of having what essentially was strangers come into my house and help me and see me in very vulnerable uh, situations or positions um, was was a very new and strange thing. And I only had carers for the past three years, so not very long at all compared to some people I've known who've had carers for ten years plus. It it is a very it becomes a very close relationship over time. The longer that you spend with that person, I mean that's that's inevitable. Spend some time with someone for a really long time, you'll get to know them. You'll get to bond with them. That you can't prevent that from happening. But in the carer role, um, because it's a job, it's it's got a monetary value. That's the wedge in the relationship. I found it fascinating how it can become as close as a relationship, but just without the romance. I wanted, yeah, I wanted to explore that. These two people, re these two characters or roles that really intersect each other's lives because of the situation. And the situation is because of the disability. So uh, Wet Dreams and Spring Mattresses is a short play that I wrote for a friend's shorts night. Her name's Melissa Dunn and she runs Papercut Theatre and she runs this night called XY Night. And it's where you write a short 10 minute play which will be performed twice in that night and the genders of the characters that you write will be flipped. I stumbled upon this article that said one of the main points that they were pushing to legalise sex 
workers was their contribution to disabled men, what their, the services that they provide for disabled men. But I read and I reread the article and nowhere did it ever mention disabled women. And I thought, mm, how come not? So then I did a bit more digging and discovered this sort of organisation that helps point both disabled men and women to help find trusted uh, sex workers, because that is neglected, the idea that... Um, care packages are about taking care of the individual's needs but completely ignores an individual's desires. Yeah, I did a bit of digging and sort of read up on the organisation and what they did and why male escorts may refuse requests from disabled women because fear of rape or fear of sort of their diminished uh, capacity that he may have taken advantage or something like that but that's completely washed over when it's a disabled man and a woman so it was a two-hander that I wrote for that was 10 minutes and in the first half the carer was male and the person being cared for is female and then performed in the second half um, the carer was female and the person being cared for was still female what was really interesting was that a lot of people preferred or what I heard at least after in the bar, a lot of people preferred the female carer and the female being cared for. And there's just some, that was quite interesting because um, in the play itself, it has a hint of a possible romance. So the idea of a female carer falling in love with the person she's been cared for, who's also female. The, when it's if it's a woman who crosses the line it's a little bit more acceptable than a man because <laughs> then it seems like he's taken advantage um which is really interesting and i think revealed again our biases and just this idea of the labels society puts on us and how that label then affects who we can love there was matilda again sharing a bit of background on her script so tell different kinds of stories all different kinds. Tell more of them and more often. Let a diverse pool of people tell the stories. But when you're time poor and money poorer, like most creative people I know, how can you affect change on a larger scale? It might not be the most well-funded theatre project in the country, but London's Vault Festival, performed in the tunnels under Waterloo Station from January to March each year, currently presents the most accessible and equitable deal for performers in the capital. The 2017 festival has just ended, but before it launched, I spoke to Matt, Tim and Andy, the three straight white men in charge of the whole operation. I've always been impressed by the Vault team's dedication to supporting their companies and with the diversity of their programme. I tried to pay them this compliment, but they weren't having any of it. Hello, I'm Tim Wilson. Hello, I'm Matt Burt. Hello, I'm Andy George, and we are the Vault Festival directors. Vault Festival is a six-week underground arts festival that takes place from 25th of January to the 5th of March. We're going into our fifth year, and last year we had 40,000 people attend the festival, and this year we're hoping to top it. We've gotten bigger than ever before, we've expanded into a couple of new venues, and we have more shows, theatre, comedy and parties in the programme than we've ever had in the past. We, we consciously you know, try and make sure the programme is more representative than maybe what you see quite a lot of in French theatre. Because there are all these kind of barriers there that we can't do much about, uh, which are barriers put in place by society for other people. And certainly people from a lower income bracket um, find it harder to put on work anywhere, and in London especially, because it's expensive. So that's why you get so many middle class people and so many kids with dad's money turning up to do shows everywhere. It's because they can afford to risk that kind of thing. And we can't. there's not much we can do about that except for the fact that we've got this deal where it's fair and equitable. And the idea is that you don't have to come and give us a cheque 
in order to put on a show. Like every, everyone can come through the door and no money changes hands until the, the box office money starts coming in for them. So I think, I think that fundamentally does make a difference because it does make it a bit more open, a bit more uh, attractive and possible than certain other places. But that doesn't go the whole way to kind of fixing the problem and that's still something I think we're, we're conscious of. For me, the, the number one thing is money. It's, it's, it's kind of like a Marxist uh, philosophy about like inclusion, which is to do with, to do with that level playing field. I think venues and the industry in general, like the fringe less so, commercial theatre, like definitely, like in a massive way. Uh, we've all worked in commercial theatre and still do. So like it's, you know, it's not something that I'm slinging at other people and saying it's not to do with us, but the industry, like most industries, are based around like who can make the most money out of any particular endeavour. And that is something that squeezes people who are starting and it squeezes people who are who have less to risk, um, and I think that is that remains one of the social barriers, um, which, as we know, how like the economic structure of the country works is like you know we still have a lot of minorities who start from a very more difficult uh, economic status than like the white population of this country. Not to say there aren't struggling white people, of course there are, um, and I think I think money's the main thing. If if we can find a way for venues and festivals to not have to take so much money from the people who want to make stuff, then I think that, that will probably, over time, solve a lot of things. Yeah, in my, in my book, I, I would go further than Matt to counter what you say and say that we, we fail uh, in that, and that Vault isn't a particularly representative audience of London. Um, and we've tried, and we will keep trying, but take a head count or you know, t- take account of any particular metric you care to at Vault, you're not going to get a reading that accurately, rep- you know, accurately represents this city. Um, no, certainly not. And, you know, and so it's weird because, you know, there is this, there's an endless guilt, you know, in the arts about this shit. And, like, it, it's, it's, very, it's very important, but it's not, it's not the reason. It's not, it's not the reason for existing. It's hugely important, but, you know, because, uh, you know, you take it as a moral obligation of how you create work or take it purely as a commercial business thing. On both ends of the spectrum, it's a very important part. Um, and so, yeah, we, we try very hard, but I, I certainly don't think we've, um, we've succeeded. I was just going to say on that point, didn't we apply to the Arts Council specifically for money to broaden our audience? Yes. And they responded by saying, no, because our audience wasn't broad enough. <laughs> Which is one of our, our yeah. favourite rejections of the Arts yeah, Council. We've had loads. Another, another cycle was, you don't, you don't make any new work, so we applied for commissioning money, and they said no. Well, we've been thinking about it a lot. Um, as we've gotten bigger, because when the festival started six years ago, this is our fifth version of the festival, sort of over six years, and back then it was just a really sort of dumb idea a few of us had to do, you know, a bunch of shows under the ground in a place that wasn't even a venue. You know, it was a, it was a big messy project that we kind of started as as an idea, and there wasn't there was no anticipation that it would become what it's become now, which I hopefully say without sounding arrogant is is a, a legitimate thing in the cultural calendar for people in London, and suddenly that means we've gone from sort of some plucky young upstarts trying to do something to being in some people's eyes cultural arbiters of what's going on and that's become a bit of a problem because we're three you can't see because we're on the radio but we're three middle class white guys look harder and so as we said you know we set the head of the artistic like direction table we set the head of all you know the staffing the program the whole running of the thing all comes through us at the central spoke so suddenly we're in a position where we're doing something that we want to be daring and innovative and diverse and broad and exciting 
And, you know, looking at us, we're kind of three of the least broad and diverse and exciting people you could ever meet. No, we're pretty exciting, actually. But it's, you know, it's, it's something that we've, we've, we've really got to think about. There wasn't, you know, when there's 7,000 people coming over three weeks, as there were in, in the first year, we were just excited to have them there. And it sort of didn't really cross our minds that much. But, you know, now that there's 40,000 people coming, we've got 200 different kind of artistic groups in the company. Suddenly it matters who it is, I think, that's saying who can be in the show and who can't be in the show. Last year, the Misfit Analysis... Um, was a was a high point uh, in in terms of recognition that the festival was doing this kind of work, um, and also the partnership with East London Dance um, that produced a fantastic, uh, totally amazing dance show um, by far from the norm called Orator, which was a sort of uh, like a conversation around politics, but totally terrifying. We and also we we had uh, Desiree Birch's show last year, Tar, Tar Baby, Baby, which is a very uh, very funny but also like intensely challenging sort of 90 minute show which she aims sort of quite deliberately at your traditional fringe white audience listening to her talk about like the history of kind of race relations in America and uh, that, that was a really great one to have in the program because she knew exactly what she was doing and who our audience was and how to talk to them about it so that was, that was a good one too For me it's two things one is touching on what Matt just said but reaching out across uh, out of London and also out of the country. Last year we had companies from New Zealand, um, from America, uh, from Europe. This year again we've got similar, we've got you know, similar from Canada. We've got all you know all over the UK as well, from Scotland, from Ireland. And I think that's really important uh, as we expand. You know, it's about expanding our borders as much as our um, as the, as the limitations of where we are. Um, and the second thing for me is our search platform, which is I guess you could to find out sort of extracurricular things. It's generally free events um, aimed to help educate, explore, expand, push out to the local community, push out to um, local partnerships we're working with. Previously, we've worked with The Passage, which is a homeless charity in Victoria. This year, we're working with Crew for Calais, who a refugee-based charity. So, you know, reaching out and trying to uh, encourage engagement, be it in a workshop, be it in how to write a funding application, be it and how to run a festival, but trying to provide free educational yeah. opportunities. For, they're, for they're really educational. There's everything from kind of how to do your taxes as kind of an independent artist, how to set up a limited company, how to talk to the Arts Council, you know, really some really boring stuff that just, uh, you know, it's hard to hear someone who knows about it talk about. You know, we're not a funded organisation. Uh, we, don't, we don't get public money. Uh, if we did, these things would be like one of the first things that that public money would pay for. Most businesses in the UK don't get a tax cut. They don't get rates relief. They don't. And do they have this conversation? No, of course they don't. And and it's one of the, just to return. The creative industries are have this have this guilt about. Okay, what are we going to do? Because this feels like a moral enterprise that we're undertaking. Because it's creative somehow. It's Something about massive liberals as well. Like in the in the industry, everyone comes from this like particular mm. mindset. Exactly, and I think there's a there's. It's one of the things that we've knocked around for a long time. Of, you know, if we got that commissioning money, you know who I'd really like to hear from? It's some right-wing playwrights. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to hear what your arguments are. And like thinking every fucking play, every people, you know, great, diverse, all this stuff, large parts of London are not left-wing. Yeah. <laughs> and most of the country isn't left-wing. Yeah. Uh, yes. And, and like, so actually, I think, the, I think the sharp end of this guilt needs to be aimed somewhere else. And as a, you know, as a London's fringe theatre scene is is arguably the best in the world. There are some there are some absolute top class venues in London, and we don't want to be. We're not 
we don't see ourselves as competition against them. We see as working together with them to nurture the young artists of tomorrow. Don't have to be young. The, the artists of tomorrow that uh, that are that are coming through. Um, the likes of the Soho Theatre, the BAC, and you know, all the way across to the Almeida and the King's Head, and you know, there's some there's some great venues doing some great stuff. Yeah, yeah. I just wish they were a little more friendly. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it is. You know, you try. You know, you're starting out. You're thinking we want to, you know, run a run a really friendly ship, be really efficient, serve the artists well, and you reach out to other other organisations, and th- and you know, an answer comes back where it's like. No, you keep yourselves to yourselves, and we'll keep ourselves to ourselves. I think that's true. that's true in some cases, but not all. We have like made friends with some other people, but it's also it's also because of that thing because we make a lot of noise about this um, sort of anti-traditional sort of deal we do, like but the artist first thing. The idea that we try and like the whole budget is geared around trying to give as much of the artist's money as possible to them. Right, this idea of not charging people rent up front, trying to give them as big a split of the box office as we can afford and still, you know, safely run the festival without going bankrupt. And obviously that can make other providers angry, you know, or, or at least feel that we're getting at them. Because if we're setting ourselves up in opposition to what already exists, you know, we're sort of pointing the finger at people, perhaps. And I can see why that would rile them. For me, it's a conversion from outreach programme to final production. There's some great things happening. The Arcola have great schemes with young writers from refugee camps, from um, black and Asian backgrounds. You know, they're, they're reaching out. It's about then taking those young writers and nurturing them to stay doing it and to be and to continue and to develop through to producing productions. Because um, I think it's all very well and good doing the outreach stuff and ticking that box. Yes, but that's not going to change anything without unless they're unless they're engaged and kept and kept look, looked after. Um, and I think that's where that's the thing that that's where the hole is at the moment. Right, it's it's very easy for for someone to slap onto a play. Like the Alcoa is quite a good example. Mm. I mean, you know, we produced a show there a couple of years ago, mm. um, in which we did. There was like a new writers program as, mm. as as part of it, and we did like workshops and talks as part of it. But it's very easy to attach something like that to a main production. You get your arts council funding. You do this kind of stuff. And, and it's just kind of, oh, great, there it is. Look at this guy, he's written a play. Like, isn't it interesting? You've not heard of him before. He's from a different background than you. That's great. And then he's he's fulfilled his purpose within that commercial production. And and then, you know, then, then, then what happens next? On. And I think yeah. that, that the middle the middle bit... Yeah, it's, it's joining the dots between, you know, there are, some, there are some great people writing some great stuff from diverse backgrounds out there. But there are a handful... They're they're they're, you know, they're dropping the ocean compared to the people that could be doing it if they were given the right encouragement and, and following following through from 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 the, their first involvement. I, I perceive two dotted lines here. There's one between the commercial part of our industry and our part of our industry. Cameron McIntosh and Kenny Wax and Andrew Lloyd Webber don't give a fuck who's in their theatres. They don't care. And like on that level, fiction isn't a creation. It's a it's a business. They don't care who buys their tickets. It's not up to them. Then there's another dotted line to the side of us, where on the other side of it, the, there is a you know there's an arrogant assumption that it'll be good for them medicinally to be involved. <laughs> we believe that's true, sure, because it's been a guiding force in our lives. But on the other side of that dotted line, people have their people have their own worlds, um, and you know. To, to a certain extent, you know, making... It's like benevolent feminism. Oh, I've made room for you. I've made room. You know, if we say, oh, we've made an outreach program... Yeah, exactly. Then, and, you know, and, you know, okay, fine. I'll come and do the outreach program for six weeks or I'll come and do a show. Fine. You know, fine. It's never going to stick. 
It's yes. never going to stick. Go on the other side of the dotted line. Because what we're talking about is expanding the industry. I'm going to disagree with your first point. Booyah. Ah. Because the Cameron Macintoshes and the Kennywaxes do have a responsibility, and I hope they do care. You, you, may, you may personally be saying that they don't care as people, but the core commercial world does have a responsibility and, and has a wider influence. Because they're reaching the people that aren't arts engagers, they are musicals and, and pantos and all this sort of thing, they are the very top-down style you know, inclusions that we need. Hey, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Hamilton, just look at Hamilton in, yeah. in, on Broadway. Like, yeah. they are, they're, not, they're not immune from, from this responsibility. And you know, this is a lesson I've learned from you. It's, it's a danger to think that there's a difference between the commercial sector and the artistic sector. There is, it's totally possible for an artistic show to be successful commercially and vice versa. No, yeah, and I, I totally agree with you. That, like, but, you know, if handing someone a responsibility equated to them caring about it, it would be a lovely world. Matt Burt, Tim Wilson and Andy George of Vault Festival there. Change from the top. Change from the bottom. Then perhaps they'll meet in the middle somewhere down the line. The creative industries seem to be slowly but surely making a concerted effort to involve voices of all different varieties, but is that enough? One theme that struck me particularly in our findings from this episode is that of money. It takes money to create things, whatever the amount, and those who are less well represented tend to be those who are less wealthy. Without the empowerment of money, how can marginalised groups of people crowbar their way into the public consciousness? We could just sit around and wait for the glorious socialist utopia, or perhaps we should trust the holders of the purse strings to dish out their money to a broad pool of people the world over, though I wouldn't hold your breath. One optimistic note is that with the democratisation of entertainment through YouTube, Twitter, podcasting and social media, a change is happening in what voices we're exposed to on a daily basis. But are these little voices of protest enough to make a dent in a huge concrete wall of complacency? I suppose we'll find out. If you'd like to do something proactive for inclusion in the arts, we recommend checking out Arts Emergency, a UK-based charity which works for less privileged young people with an interest in the arts, and the Gina Davis Foundation, the Oscar-winning actors' campaign for representation on our screens. Meanwhile, we intend to do our small part here at Story Etc. How have we done so far? Appallingly! An episode themed around inclusion with no South or East Asian voices? No transgender contribution? Well... Inclusion's a big topic, and I suspect we haven't closed the book on it yet here at Story Etc. To find out more about all the guests you've heard from in this episode, visit storyetcpod.com for full episode notes. If you'd like to help us broaden our pool of talent, then please don't hesitate to get in touch. We're always looking for radio plays, actors, and interview contacts. If you think you can help us out, then you can email us at storyetcpod at gmail.com. We want to hear your stories, too. If you've enjoyed this first episode of Story Etc., then please subscribe to the show and perhaps consider giving us a nice review on iTunes or your podcast platform of choice. It really does help us get the word out about our show. For now, bye-bye from all of us, and we hope you'll tune in to our next episode. Myth. Story Etc. Episode 1, Inclusion, was presented by Tom Crowley. The producers and correspondents were Jenny Redmond, Eleanor Rushton and Tom Crowley, and the editor was Odin ornhill Marson, who also composed the music. Our guests this month were Marley Butler, Olivia Onyahara, Paul Harfleet, Matilda Ibini, Matt Burt, Tim Wilson, and Andy George. Story Etc. is a production of Audio Scribble and Crowley & Co. Thanks for listening.